Who you put your trust in matters. Investors have put their trust in independent registered investment advisors to the tune of $4 trillion. Why? Learn more at findyourindependentadvisor.com. Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen with David Gura. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on iTunes, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. Our first guest this morning, Sheila Baer, former chair of the FDIC, the Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation, now the president of Washington College. And Sheila, it's great to have you with us again. Thanks for having me. Let me start with with personnel. We are so focused here on who Donald Trump is going to appoint for for what. Are are we overplaying the the, the role of these personnel picks uh, at this point in the transition? Well, no, I think the personnel picks are are very important, especially in the financial regulatory agencies. You know, uh, Dodd-Frank, for all the rhetoric about Dodd-Frank, it really was just a big grant of of authority to uh, the Secretary of Treasury and the head of the various uh, federal regulators, so financial regulators. So I do think these appointments are, are very key in terms of what kinds of policies we'll be uh, pursuing going forward. Sheila, what do we know about the way Donald Trump makes these appointments? He's been favoring loyalists so far. Will that change? Right. Yeah. Well, I, I don't know. I, I don't know the gentleman. And uh, it, it strikes me that he's that kind of personality that's going to be giving uh, high priority to people who supported him and were loyal to him uh, during the campaign. And so that's that's good. I think appointments can also... Some should include uh, unity appointments. Obviously, all of them you want high-quality, experienced people um, who will be able to uh, be effective in their jobs. But it it does strike me that he's he's a person that puts a high premium on loyalty. You've written uh, this open letter to to Donald Trump. You're now the president of Washington College and and, uh, in that capacity interact a lot with with young people. And and I wonder what prompted you to to do that and sort of what you're calling upon him to do. Well, uh, I do think that uh, there, there were actually two things in the letter. One was, uh, and others have, have suggested that, I think uh, students, particularly students of color, are, are somewhat fearful. There was a lot of heated rhetoric during the campaign. Uh, they're fearful that uh, Mr. Trump's election will could be interpreted by some as a, as a you know, a, a ratification of, of biased uh, sentiments. I, I don't think that's what uh, Mr. Trump stands for, what his presidency stands for, but that's certainly a perception. And, and some of our students are fearful, and I think uh, to the extent he could uh, make strong statements against bias, against harassment and intimidation of any kind, against students of color or other uh, groups that have been uh, historically uh, discriminated against, that would be reassuring. You know, and everybody in the country is hurting. I think that's one of the sad things about this election, as it did so profoundly uh, break out on racial lines, because really working families, whether you're, whether you're white or whether you're a person of color, uh, people have been struggling. And I think it was that constituency who he's uh, he's trying to reach. I hope sincerely so, and will will help uh, the working class where we've not had uh, not uh, very robust uh, good job growth uh, until lately, uh, virtually no uh, improvement in real wages. So that middle class segment is really uh, who he's trying to reach, and I think that should be a unifying theme. And hopefully he can reinforce that through his public statements. But I do think he needs to make very very strong statements against discrimination, intimidation, harassment in any form. I think students across the country would find that reassuring. 
And, and Sheila, do you see this coming? It, it seems that with his latest tweets talking about serious voter fraud in Virginia, New Hampshire, and California, about the popular vote, he's, he doesn't seem like a president-elect who really wants to unify the country. Am I wrong? Yeah, well, I, I hope. I, I want to still give him the benefit of the doubt. I think his uh, victory speech was, was a very good one. Uh, it, it sounded sincere to me. Uh, it sounded unifying. He said he wanted to be the president of all Americans. He was going to be the president of all Americans. So I, I hope that's the tunnel Trump uh, we see. Um, and, uh, I, you know, I, I hope he and his advisors will be very careful in terms of thinking how his words could be interpreted by some as a threatening or intimidating. And that's absolutely the wrong signal we want to send to people, especially young people in our country. Sheila, let me ask you about um, your sense of, of what regulation is going to look like uh, under a Donald Trump presidency. Of course, Mary Jo White, the head of the SEC, saying she's going to step down at the end of, of President Obama's term. A number of vacancies there. But we're really looking at sort of a, a, a full-scale personnel overhaul across the regulatory right. agencies. What's your, your sense of, your understanding of what regulation is going to look like? Well, I'm not sure. I'm, I'm hoping we'll see smart regulation, not no regulation. I think we, we tried the no regulation, very light touch, uh, uh, you know, relying on self-correcting markets, which clearly didn't work uh, prior to the crisis. So you do need some strong uh, common sense regulation, which I hope he preserves. You know, things like stronger capital requirements. I think everybody, conservative, liberal, progressive, um, uh, libertarian, everybody uh, understands that these uh, large financial institutions were relying far too much on borrowed money. They needed to have more common equity, more skin in the game that would give them um, better incentives to, to temper, uh, temper risk-taking and also uh, to uh, align economic incentives and, and have a cushion uh, to absorb losses if you get into a downturn, which they didn't have. So I'm hoping at least on really basic things like capital, he continues course and actually strengthens them. Uh, and that's something Jeb Henserling, uh, while he would deregulate in other areas, has pushed for much stronger capital requirements as a trade-off for less regulation in other areas. So I, I hope that that's what he'll pursue. You know, where, where the party's going to be and whether his administration is going to be on Glass-Steagall, that was in the party platform. I don't know to what extent he feels um, committed to that. But that is, again, bipartisan. There's a lot of bipartisan interest in, in restoring Glass-Steagall and, and dividing, particularly investment banking and commercial banking once again. So uh, I do think in terms of financial regulation, you need to make a distinction as to where he might go in other, uh, other areas. But uh, we, again, we, we tried no regulation prior to the crisis. Ironically, I think this very uh, light-touch regulatory environment that brought us the crisis is in large part responsible for getting him elected. I think there's a backlash continuing against um, the crisis, the bailouts that follow, the sense that there was one set of rules for the big banks, another set of rules for everybody else. So that helped propel him to the White House. And it would be really ironic if he created a regulatory environment that gave us this excessive risk-taking and brought us another crisis again. I hope that's not what happened. Right. And, and Sheila, this is, you know, when we talk about deregulation, we talk about Wall Street, we talk about build, you know, big banks, but actually we talk about also uh, the oil sector, a whole loads right. of sector. If you deregulate too much, does it not actually amplify inequality? Well, it could. You know, it, it very well could. And uh, ironically, uh, a lot of the policies, I think unintentionally, but a lot of the policies that were pursued in the current administration did uh, tremendously help the wealthy and large corporations. You, you know, you implement, if you use monetary policy to try to stimulate the economy, which is basically what we've done for the past uh, eight years, uh, what you have is a situation where very wealthy people benefit because financial assets their value is inflated. It's very easy for large corporations to access the debt markets to raise funding, 
much harder for smaller uh, entities that rely on bank lending with these very low interest rates to access the credit that they need. So uh, I, I do uh, hope that all policies that he pursues are, are evaluated to the prism of how this is going to impact the working class, and that is who got him elected. And, uh, you know, more the same where we just really, whether it's, it's under different guys, but we just continue helping uh, those who have, but they have already, I don't think that's uh, going to be good politically or good for the economy. You need a growing middle class to have a healthy economy, and we have not had that for several years now. Sheila, you mentioned the, the party platform and, and uh, Glass-Steagall and all of that. You, uh, a registered Republican, have you emerged from, from this campaign, this election, with a different sense of your allegiance to that party, or, or, or does it stay the same? In other words, have you had to reckon with that at all? Yeah. Well, you know, I did. Uh, I, I was very troubled by a lot of the statements uh, that were made uh, during the campaign. Uh, I, I actually voted for the libertarian ticket. Um, my my son actually convinced me he's a libertarian, and as a bit of a uh, a, a vote, a wake up vote uh, to the Republican Party, I do think we need to be a party of inclusion, a big tent, not a small tent party. Again, I'm hopeful, uh, given uh, his acceptance speech, that that is the direction. Mr. Trump is going to pursue. So I really think this is make it or break it time, though. We have, uh, you know, we had uh, very strong electoral results. Uh, both the presidency as well as both houses of Congress are now under Republican control. We have an opportunity uh, to, to change policies in a way that are going to help our economy and help our middle class. And I, and I think there are good Republican ways through tax reform where you lower the top rates, but you also broaden the base so you, you, you don't uh, lose a lot of revenue. I think you can do smart infrastructure spending through uh, uh, policies that take advantage of these low interest rates, which we right. haven't done, but also rely on user fees or there's been proposals to, you know, windfalls associated with bringing, with repatriating a lot of the overseas income that's been trapped because of our, uh, our ill-advised uh, tax policies, using some of that to pay for infrastructure. Sure. I think there's ways you can provide stimulus without blowing a hole in the budget. Sheila, thank you so much. Sheila Baer, the Washington College president. This is Bloomberg. Del Castro passed away over the weekend, longtime leader of Cuba. Joining us now to talk more about him, his legacy, and what happens next to Cuba-U.S. relations is Julia Swag. She's senior research fellow at the Lyndon B. Johnson School of Public Affairs at the University of Texas, Austin, author of Cuba, What Everyone Needs to Know. Julia, great to speak with you. Good morning. Thanks for having me. Thanks for taking the time. Give us a sense of the significance here. Of course, Fidel Castro had ceded a lot of administrative responsibility to, to his brother, uh, what does this mean going forward? In other words, how does the country pick up from here? Well, you're, you're correct. Really, for the better part of the last 10 years, Fidel Castro has been not entirely off the political stage, but certainly off the stage of governance and government and policy guidance, and really off the political stage for the last few years. So this does not portend any kind of earthquake or radical change in terms of how Cuba is run, in terms of the economic reform process that Raul Castro started about five or six years ago. Um, so I think it's important your, your audience understand that his death has very significant symbolic uh, importance, but in terms of the day-to-day -day and the tomorrow, I don't foresee any major changes. Not yet. Julia, what, was it, what will his legacy be? You, know, you see low levels of crime. You see high rates of literacy. At the same time, he um, you know, really squandered a lot of the country's enormous economic potential. 
Yes, well, that legacy you, you summed up well, and I would add something else, which is that he spent a lot of resources on health and education for Cuban, the Cuban people, on elevating Cuba's standing culturally, internationally, and on putting Cuba on the geopolitical map for many, many decades, especially during the Cold War. But because of his extreme allergy to the market, to capitalism, and to the way he associated with capitalism uh, with the United States, its imperial dominance in Latin America, he delayed for a long time Cuba's potential development, which is what Raul Castro is now trying to harness and pick up very rapidly before he himself, or at least launch Cuba on a new economic path, before he himself steps down in 2018. Does his does Fidel Castro's legacy loom less large in Latin America than, than it once did? You look at, at who he influences among other leaders uh, uh, in the continent? Well, that's a good question. You know, we've had a, a shift in Latin America just in the last year, going from kind of center-left left populism um, to a more uh, centrist, center, center-right orientation. But, you know, it's not so long ago that Hugo Chavez was running Venezuela. Evo, Evo Morales is still in Bolivia. His legacy in Latin America, I would argue, is enormous. Even Cuba, for example, having hosted peace talks uh, around in Colombia for Colombian, the FARC rebels, the Colombian government for the last several years, culminating quite recently in the uh, conclusion of the, the negotiated peace and the stand down of the FARC insurgency. That uh, orientation, the impulse that Fidel had to first bring revolution to Latin America, which he did, um, and then to pull back and back um, peaceful transitions in those countries. That's very significant. And the emphasis that he put in Latin America on pointing out inequality, poverty, uh, pointing out how U.S. policy in the region for many, many decades held back so, so many Latin Americans, he became a huge symbol, not only to people that supported him, but to people that opposed him. His influence was just huge. What do we know about, you know, his brother Raul? So he's been um, the president since 2008. He's not really a liberal, or is he? No. <laughs> no, you know, he's... Look, at in the... Raul Castro was a member of the Communist Youth Party in Cuba before Fidel Castro even got close to the communists. He went to the Soviet Union when he was in his 20s. But, you know, once he once they took power in, in 1959 and he became head of the armed forces, minister of defense, and especially beginning in the 1980s as the Soviet bloc collapsed and after into the 1990s, it was Raul Castro who looked around and said, you know, I'm going to start training some of my guys in the military to run capitalist enterprises. And he was the one who had far less of a, of a, a visceral rejection to market economies, and he, I think, sees them today as head of state as essential to being able to take advantage and move Cuba up the value-added chain internationally. He's kind of an eyes-wide-open guy, very pragmatic in terms of uh, the, the world that Cuba exists in and what Cuba needs in order to preserve the legacy of health and education and autonomous foreign policy that Fidel started. That doesn't make him a liberal. It makes him you know, I think grounded in a, a kind of national interest realpolitik approach to uh, Cuba's future. 
Julia, thank you very much for, for taking the time. Really appreciate it. That's Julia Swag. She's Senior Research Fellow at Lyndon B. Johnson School of Public Affairs at the University of Texas, uh, Austin. The author of Cuba, What Everyone Needs to Know, of course, as we mark the death of Fidel Castro, longtime leader of Cuba. He passed away on Friday. Who you put your trust in matters. Investors have put their trust in independent registered investment advisors to the tune of $4 trillion. Why? They see their role as to serve, not sell. That's why Charles Schwab is committed to the success of over 7,000 independent financial advisors who passionately dedicate themselves to helping people achieve their financial goals. Learn more at findyourindependentadvisor.com. I'm looking at the most recent cover of Foreign Affairs here uh, with apologies to Grant Wood, American Gothic Redux here, uh, farmer and his wife, uh, he with his signature pitchfork and a Make America Great hat on as well. The editor of that magazine joins us now, Gideon Rose, the editor of Foreign Affairs magazine, Peter G. Peterson, chair of the Council on Foreign Relations, here to talk a bit about uh, populism at a time when we're all wondering what it is exactly. And, and Michael Kaysen, in his piece for the magazine, uh, Gideon, really getting to the, the heart of this, this is sort of an, an ineffable thing. A lot of people have laid claim to the term populist. So, you know, I think that uh, you just talked about anger rooms coming to the states. I think that that's actually a good analogy, right? The kind con- the entire country becomes an anger room in which you trash everything because uh, you're not happy with the way things are going. So populism has uh, several historical strands, but it's basically a feeling that the ordinary people are getting screwed, and they're either getting screwed by elites primarily – but also there's sometimes the feeling that they're getting screwed by the people below them who look different and uh, are at the even bottom uh, rungs of the totem pole. So uh, the Trump phenomenon seems to mix both of those things, right? You have uh, anger at elites who are supposedly uh, self-dealing and profit-taking and keeping the goodies for themselves and running the system the way they want to, but also anger at the perceived uh, uh, others, uh, different uh, brown, uh, darker, uh, different religion, foreign nationality, people who are coming in, taking jobs, taking benefits, etc. And so there's a kind of fire trained both up and down at the elite and at the people at the true bottom. Gideon, do people know what they're angry about? And I guess it's only by looking at the root of the problem then that our politicians can actually fix it. Is it immigration? Is it globalization? Is it being lost with technology, uh, you know, technological advances? So there's a classic uh, Marlon Brando movie back in the 50s. I think it was called The uh, Wild One. And he's asked at one point, he plays this sort of motorcycle guy, what are you rebelling against? And his response is, what do you got? Uh, (laughs) And uh, so at, at this point, there's a general inchoate anger room trash everything. Uh, and it's not clear that, that, that anybody even knows uh, what exactly. Clear, look, there have been a whole lot of failures. There's been uh, a failure to distribute the proceeds of growth. This is the whole economic inequality stuff that we've been talking about. Not just, you know, the odd thing is Donald Trump and Occupy Wall Street have something in common, a belief that the proceeds uh, of, of uh, the gains of the last generation or two of globalization have gone to a small lead at the top. There's also uh, cultural change, demographic change, a country in which it seems like there right. are newly empowered groups. And there's also uh, just a feeling that, that jobs and trade and manufacturing sector and uh, that there really isn't much of a role in the economy for uh, non-skilled uh, uh, people working Gideon, in manufacturing. 
where does this end? Because if everybody rebels, then we're left with a, a pretty scary world three, four years from now. I remember uh, the day after Donald Trump got elected, listening to some of you know the foreign news and a Saudi reporter actually saying, well, people are fed up in the Middle East as well, and they would probably vote for Islamic State at the moment as a protest would vote if they could. Well, this is a great big question. We really don't know. And, and it's, in fact, the uncertainty that in many ways is the, mo- the scariest kind of thing. So I remember asking uh, a, a friend on Wall Street back about eight years ago at this time, sort of, why is everything so crazy? Why are markets so freaked? And he said, look, there's a 20% chance of a depression, maybe. Uh, and we're all freaked out about that. And I said, okay, well, that's bad, but there's a, that means there's an 80% chance of no depression, right? So why isn't that good? He said, you don't understand. A year ago, if you'd said, what is the chance of a depression? I would have said zero. The fact that it's up to 20%, that's freaking us all out. So in the same kind of way, uh, what Trump has and Trump voters and the Trump campaign has put forward, like a lot of other populists, is literally a sort of tear the whole system down, uh, get rid of the post-war order, stop trade agreements, stop alliances, uh, uh, do all sorts of things differently. And if they actually put any of that into actual practice, it would cause a national and geopolitical and international uh, catastrophe. Um, But we don't know if they're actually going to do any of that. So right now there's this chance that Mm. the world could be burned down, but we don't actually know. So I think it's still an unlikely possibility, but it'll depend on what they believed Actually, what they said they actually believed, sure. what they said that they believed they actually care about, and what sort of pushback they get from domestic, international, bureaucratic, and other actors. And we just haven't seen any of that yet. Last question here just about the, 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 the brand of populism that we're seeing right now as you assemble this magazine, not just looking at the U.S., but, but the whole world. Is the same? Is it the same what we've seen in, in the U.K., in the U.S., what we're seeing in other parts of, of, of Europe right now, perhaps what we've seen in, in Colombia to, are we looking at the same kind of populism? Well, this is a fascinating question. And I think the answer is they share some familial similarities, but they're not exactly the same. Uh, it's interesting. There's a kind of ethno-nationalism. Now, in one sense, it's kind of weird because why would ethno-nationalists in one country agree with ethno-nationalists in another country from a different nationalist group, a different ethnos? But the fact is they all seem to rebel against the cosmopolitan elite. Um, there's a pop, and, and so what you have is a kind of sense that immigration has gone too far, economic globalization has gone too far, uh, cultural homogenization has gone too far, and everybody's screaming and 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 just and trashing the room. But it's not right. entirely clear uh, how correlated these movements are and how much there actually is a broader ideology. Gideon Rose, thank you very much. Editor of Foreign Affairs, Peter G. Peterson, Chair of the Council on Foreign Relations, the new issue of Foreign Affairs, The Power of Populism. This is Bloomberg Surveillance on Bloomberg Radio. David Gurr with Francine Lockwood today. Many people trying to define, put their finger on what Trumponomics, Trump economics uh, is. Among them, Bill Lee, he's managing director and head of North America Economics at Citigroup, has a new note on that out, and he joins us now. Hey, Bill, how you doing? Great. Thanks for having me. A line stood out to me in, in, in your most recent note. You said a mercurial temperament is one feature of President-elect Trump's behavior that we can expect to raise policy uh, uncertainty. It's, <laughs> it, it, it makes me think it must be incredibly difficult at this point to forecast out, given, given all of the uncertainty. Very much so, and I think uh, a lot of my, my colleagues in the marketplace have got it wrong. Um, everyone's anticipating, oh, my God, we're going to get all this massive fiscal stimulus, and, and that means that uh, rates have to go up, but inflation's going to have to go up. And we think that will happen, but not until 2018 or even later. So so it, one of the textbook examples that we always give our clients now is that um, remember when the teacher said, when we anticipate fiscal policy, markets react immediately. That means rates go up, the dollar goes up, and what does that produce? Drag. And so what we've done for the forecast for 20. 
2017 is actually marked down because of that uh, market reaction. All right, but Bill, so why do you think that he won't be able to spend or reflate the economy as fast as markets seem to think? Is it because he doesn't have the houses with him because they're fiscal hawks, or a lot of them are? Is it the dollar strength, or is it just the fact that actually you need a lot more to reflate the U.S.? Well, he's been pretty tricky in, in sort of what he's talked about so far. Um, all this talk, for example, of infrastructure spending, he said, well, what we're going to do is to try to get the private sector to, to come in, and we're going to give them tax credits for 80 cents on every dollar they, they put into the infrastructure. Well, that means a lot of toll roads and bridges, new toll roads and bridges, but that does not re- mean repairing LaGuardia Airport or a lot of the decaying bridges that have no tolls on it. So the, the, the needed infrastructure spending that we all envision is not the kind of infra- infrastructure spending that the Trump program currently has in mind. When we talk about tax cuts, we're talking likely about the, the, the lowering of corporate tax rates and the lowering of personal tax rates. Well, what's the one characteristic about tax cuts? Unless they're guaranteed to be permanent, people are going to save a lot of it because the uncertainty of whether or not the tax policy gets reversed or not causes people to be more cautious. And we're seeing that in consumers' uh, households today where the savings rates are higher, and we're seeing it in the corporate behavior because what are they doing with all the excess profits? They're giving it back to shareholders and dividends and stuff like that. So these are the kind of forces that are still there and still operating, even with the Trump policies in place. Bill, is it your sense here that the the debate is over <laughs> as to whether or not we'll have a stimulus package, as to whether or not we'll get these these tax cuts? Is the is the horse out of the barn there? Or are we destined to have them, whether or not it makes economic sense? I think one of the things that, that the markets are optimistic about, and certainly I'm optimistic about, is that we have what is, might be the closest we've come to a unified government in, in, in ages. And, and, and so if they don't do it now, when can they do it? And, and, and if, in fact, what distinguishes us from what's going on in Europe is that the, in Europe we still see the balkanization of politics leading to balkanization of economic policy, which leads to fiscal policy going nowhere. Here we have some inkling that maybe all of the, the popular unrest is, is, is now expressed itself, and that means that the mandate is given to Congress and to the President, do something. And what we don't know about is what that something is, and, and so we think the tax cuts are in play, because you're, as you say, it, the, the horse is out of the barn. Now, how right. much of a tax cut, and how long will it last, that's what's unknown. But, Bill, why is Europe any different? In Europe, we went through austerity, and this was the one thing that actually, you know, we heard over and over and over, and we had Mario Draghi, you know, press conference after press conference saying, guys, we need fiscal stimulus. Why can Europe not wake up, look at Donald Trump, and say, actually, you know what, guys, we're going to do the same? Because the political horizon for a lot of the needed reforms in Europe, structural reforms, improving labor market efficiency, getting rid of a lot of the regulatory burden, especially on smaller businesses in, say, Italy, uh, those, those rules take about uh, five to ten years to put in place, another five to ten years before they take hold. Um, remember that other Super Mario brother that no one seems to be talking about anymore, Mario Monti? <laughs> he, he actually put in a lot of structural reforms. So what happened right. to him? After one year, he got blown out. Now, Renzi is surely trying to implement a lot of those reforms, but the, it's at a snail's pace and because the mandate isn't there. Here in the U.S., uh, we, 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 we have not had the opportunity, I think, to put in the needed reforms, but now there seems to be the likelihood that we could start that way, especially with deregulation. Right. And, and if that proceeds, and especially if we can cut back on a lot of the executive orders that Obama put in place, um, uh, because he's, he's been the, he's used yeah. m- most often the executive orders to put in place regulatory policies, reversing that might put in the structural reforms more quickly than what we saw in All right, Bill, let's come back. Bill Lee, their managing director, head of North American Economics at 
Citigroup. This is Bloomberg Surveillance. Bill, we were talking a little bit about populism. You were telling us that actually you disagree with a lot of your counterparts, that Donald Trump will not be able to reflate the economy as soon as the markets are expecting. Uh, the OECD lifted its global growth forecast. Are you expecting something ugly out there? Again, is it because of dollar strength? Will the Fed be able to hike in December and then twice next year? Actually, I think that a lot of the source of the global uh, economy coming back online uh, has to do with a lot of the emerging market countries, especially some of the big ones, coming out of recession. So, so I think that's a, a good sign, but it's not the kind of growth that would be a driver for the global economy. The, the only driver I see out there is still the U.S. economy. And, and, and there again, um, the timing of everything is really critical. Uh, the market reaction is, is, is putting on drag on the U.S. economy right now and, and for 2017, and certainly through the first half. And, and it won't be until we see the, the tax cuts come into play, which probably will take the legislatures uh, into 2018 before we actually see it ha- having an impact on the, on the U.S. Uh, actual spending. So, so, so really the, the question that, that I'm, I'm, I'm raising here is, what is, is whether or not the market can see through the, the drag that we see in the immediate future for the possibility of that higher growth uh, uh, coming online in 2018 and beyond. So what our forecast has done is to mark down 2017 to like 1.8 from what it used to be at 2.1 before the election. And, and then we pushed up uh, 2018 to about 2.5%. Um, and, and there again, it, it, it is a mild kind of a boost because we're just not sure how much of a, of a package can really be put through Congress. How much does, you know, I, I asked this of Sheila Bear a few minutes ago, how much personnel matters? We're paying rapt attention here uh, to all the speculation about who Donald Trump might pick. But, you know, t- to be fair, if he picks Steve Mnuchin to run the Treasury Department, we really don't know much about how Steve Mnuchin will run the Treasury Department. Precisely. And, and that's why I'm reluctant to put in play uh, sort of the, the, the numbers that are being bandied around about uh, fiscal spending and tax cuts. Uh, I, I am putting in some of that stuff, but, but we, we will see, and, and I think our forecasts will have to evolve as we learn more about not just what, what the broad outlines are, but actually what the, the actual policies that will be put in play by the people who are going to be put in spots that we have yet to find out about. So I think that's the source of uncertainty. And, 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 and the one thing that uncertainty absolutely guarantees is that people will delay decisions. They will delay spending decisions for infrastructure, investment, and consumption. And that means drag. <laughs> so the one thing you know for sure is that we're going to have a, a drag on the immediate uh, level of economic activity. Mm. Which means what exactly, Bill? That actually consumers feel a little bit less confident about the future so that they spend a little bit less? Or is it CEOs that are actually holding back ha- what, from look investing? Look at what's ha- Exactly, Francine. Look at what happened with our Black, uh, our, our Black Friday. Um, I mean, that, that was supposed to be the best day of the year, and it came in under where it was last year. That, to me, is absolutely no surprise in this environment where, yes, we have the prospect of something really good happening, but we just don't know what shape the good stuff might be. And so what do you do? <laughs> you just save a little bit more uh, because just in case, things might not turn out the way they, they, they are supposed to. You know, the, the, the thing we've heard the least about, I think, since the, the election results were in uh, is uh, about trade, uh, perhaps about immigration, but about yeah. trade as well. And these are the big, the big X factors. So at this point, do you, do you take what the now president-elect said on the campaign trail at face, or, or how do you begin to, to process sort of what might happen with regard Fantastic to trade, with regard to immigration? That, thank you for that. Um, the, 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 the silver lining I see that's being developed being, uh, since the day of the election, the one thing Donald Trump did that was incredibly smart was to come out the minute he got elected and say, you know, we may not have a trade war 
I really want to bring China to negotiate. You know, I'm not going to throw out millions and millions of people. I'm just going to go after the people with criminal records. That clarity, I think, was the best thing he could do to calm the markets, because now we know that a lot of the policies that he's talked about on the campaign trail are targeted. And, and, and the more targeted they are, the better off we in general will be, because we now can plan around whatever he's targeting. And, 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 and he can build as much of a wall as he wants, but as long as he doesn't disrupt the labor market with the new immigration policy or new trade policy by declaring tariffs and wars and things like that, that's the fear that I had been warning people about before. And from the day of his, um, in, of his uh, election um, uh, result, uh, he has been essentially giving us more details about targeting his, his campaign claims. Right. And Bill, you're sure that that this is the way it will be, because I'm looking at his tweets, right? He's talking about serious voter fraud. He's talking about the fact that he would have won the so-called popular vote. Um, to me, it seems like a person like that's very uncertain or, or that's very hot-headed and, and could actually reverse some of the things that he said to The New York Times just last week. You're absolutely right. And that's why I said the one thing I know for sure is more uncertainty. And so what do you do in the face of uncertainty? Do less and do it later. So, so <laughs> I know the Twitter wars mean nothing other than highly, you know, a, high, a higher degree of uncertainty and transparency into the uncertainty than we've ever seen before. We don't have the traditional policy wonk filters that the staff would do for the president. Um, and, and, and so I think that's the, the new regime that we're going to have to learn to live with. Bill, how are, are policymakers processing all of this? We have the next Fed meeting here in, what, three weeks' time. Uh, is their game here to wait this out to see what happens with regard to stimulus, with regard to tax cuts, or are they going to sort of push ahead, uh, paying no attention to what may or may not happen? Well, being a former uh, Fed staffer and, and, and a guy who used to sit at the table when we did the forecast meetings uh, at the board, um, the one thing I, I know they're going to do, um, they're going to turn to the fiscal guy and say, so what do you think? Mm. And they're going to ask the exact same question you just asked me, and the fiscal guy is going to respond the way I just responded, which is to say, <laughs> beats me. <laughs> Your guess is as good as mine. And because of that, I'm going to use as much of current policy as I know is going to be in play and probably give you the contingencies around it. Um, and it looks like the contingencies for trade and immigration are less uh, uh, less bad than they, they were the day before the election. Um, and I think the fiscal policy uh, spending will be less robust than what we think because of the way the financing is being arranged. And the big unknown is whether the tax cuts can get in play in a way that will be perceived as permanent. Those are the discussions around the board table uh, right before the, the next FOMC meeting. But, Bill, what do you mean? I mean, tax cuts, tax cuts overall, or is it tax cuts to repatriate some of, some of the money that uh, is currently o overseas? Good point, Francine. Um, the, 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 the one thing that I think there's a lot of consensus about on both sides of the aisle is to bring back those corporate profits, because that, that is one way of, of financing a lot of the spending that, that might be put in play, uh, and, and, and some of the other tax cuts. So we think that actually in 2017, we will see that tax cut be put in place, because that's the one thing that they want, which is uh, a way of bringing back corporate profits. Now, uh, that that I think because it is a temporary uh, one-time uh, benefit uh, will probably not really affect spending all that much. A lot of that money will come in. There'll be tax revenues for the government. And by the way, the way the arcane accounting is done, that is considered a revenue loss because the way they score the tax bill is to say, well, they would have brought it back at a higher tax rate at some point in the future. Now we have to uh, bill it at a much lower tax rate. So so the, 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 the minutia of, of how Congress perceives that tax 
cut is not they, that tax um, cut uh, cut and the profits that come back is not an uh, extra source of revenue, but in fact they scored as a tax loss, and that's the minutia that has to be worked out. Bill, very quick here, uh, looking at the Bloomberg Dollar Spot Index at 101.5, up a little bit, stronger a little bit. Uh, how long do you expect the stronger dollar story to continue? Well, our, our own in-house view is that there's a 8 to 10 percent um, rise in the dollar from the, the time of the election onward. Uh, a lot of that is already put in play. And so, um, so, so I think that if it were to go up 8 to 10 percent, that is enough to generate easily about a quarter to half point of drag on the U.S. economy. So, so, uh, so we'll see if, it, if, it, if that carries out or not. That's, that's, William, that's our baseline forecast. That's William Lee there, Bill Lee, Managing Director and Head of North American Economics at Citigroup. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on iTunes, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm out on Twitter at Tom Keen. David Gura is at David Gura. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio. put your trust in matters. Investors have put their trust in independent registered investment advisors to the tune of $4 trillion. Why? Learn more at findyourindependentadvisor.com.